Mm-hmm. Women are not getting, uh, that we don't have a seat at the table anywhere near the numbers that we need to in order to be representative in terms of policy decision-making, product development decisions um, around devising products and services that are designed to help us meet our own needs. What is up, everybody? This is Matilda Aguera-Cooper, and you're listening to Finesha Wellness, the podcast that explores what it means to thrive and live well. Now, as women, we know there are several things in life that can knock our self-esteem. Rejection, disappointment, jeans feeling a little bit tighter than they used to. (laughs) Well, maybe that's just me. But when it comes to our future, it's easy to underestimate the impact not having a long-term plan, especially for investing, can have on how we feel about ourselves and feeling in control of our life, a major part of our well-being. So on today's episode, I sat down with Davinia Tomlinson. She's the award-winning founder of RainCheck, a digital financial education advice and coaching platform set up to help women and girls take control of their financial futures. She's also the author of Cash is Queen, the world's first financial literacy book written exclusively for preteen and teenage girls. We talk all things investing, why it matters, how this can help you feel in control, and knowing how being intentional about your money goals can set you up for future success. Enjoy. Welcome to the Finesse Your Wellness Podcast, Davinia. Hi, Matilda. Thank you for having me. Uh, it is absolutely a pleasure to have you on the show because not many people may know this, but they will know now. A few years ago, I signed up for your awesome platform, Rain Check. And it's because I'd reached a time in my life where I really wanted to understand all this investing malarkey. (laughs) (laughs) And it was actually just a step of faith for me to sign up. Um, But I just have to say, I love what you've built. And for me personally, it really taught me so much about just dreaming bigger, being more purposeful with my money. Mm. And so just to kind of... and, And do you hear that often? Like, do people kind of rock up to you in the road and say... Girl, you changed my life. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? The one thing that is really lovely about the Rainmaker community is how not just close-knit we are, but also how forthcoming people are. People like you, women like you, who come back and will share with me various anecdotes about, you know, how the experience has helped them reshape or reframe how they view their relationship with money and to make more practical decisions around their money management. And that's perhaps the most enriching and rewarding thing about the work that I do. So of course it it is about helping women take control of their financial futures. And there are certain specific things that we talk through, you know, we have a very uh, comprehensive program around that, but I think more importantly, it's about recognizing the emotional connection that we all have as men or women when it comes to our money and the way that, you know, having, you know, in some respects, a dysfunctional relationship with money can derail us in all aspects of our lives. So when I hear from women about, you know, being able to dream bigger, as you've just said, or to take certain decisions in their lives, maybe change jobs, negotiate salaries, move abroad, um, even thinking about family planning and what that might look like, you know, from a financial perspective, all of those things really make my heart sing. So yeah, it's lovely to hear. Yeah. So before you actually started, you know, transforming people's lives, where did your (laughs) own journey into finance and investing start? 
Yeah. So I started my career at, you know, a huge global asset management firm in the city of London. I am a Brummie, um, but I remember, you know, being like completely enthralled with the world of finance uh, from a relatively early age, I would say, from my kind of teenage years. And originally I thought I was going to become an accountant. Yeah. What was it about money? Yeah. I think it was that I felt, you know, I, I had quite an analytical brain. I loved numbers. Um, and I went to quite a competitive girls' school where, you know, we win, we weren't really trained. And I think actually this is not something that I share quite commonly. I do a lot of podcast interviews, but I don't really talk about the impact on my life in terms of my formative years of being educated in an all-girl environment. And I know that mm. there are lots of different schools of thought around, you know, what the best environment is in which children and young adults can thrive. But for me, because I didn't have, you know, lots of the... Uh, preconceptions people might have about who should be better than whom at sciences or math or, you know, boy subjects and girl subjects. We didn't have that. We were just girls. And so on that basis, I didn't even think to think that some of the inequalities that I might then go on to discover in my adult life and in my career existed. You know, this idea that, you know, women should shrink themselves or, you know, that we uh, should be subservient in these ways, or, you know, we shouldn't talk about money or I just didn't, I wasn't raised and I wasn't socialized and I wasn't educated in that environment. And so that really left quite a lasting mark on me in terms of me being very open-minded about the career path that I would pursue. And so, you know, I always talk about, you know, coming from a, a traditionally, uh, large immigrant Caribbean family, you know, in, uh, in Birmingham, as I say, And I have a very close relationship with my maternal grandmother, who was the first person I knew who had a financial advisor. And I think, right, (laughs) imagine this mother of five left the Caribbean to move to the UK as a 21 year old woman who already at that stage was a mom of two. Hmm. And you move to this completely different continent, completely different world. And brick by brick, effectively, you know, through all of her labor and efforts, she built, uh, you know, she managed to to build wealth herself in her own way. And she supported lots of us, you know, myself, my cousins and, you know, parents, aunts and uncles in our various endeavors, whether it be through education, building businesses, you know, whatever it was that we were doing, my grandmother was always there. And it was as a result of her having established solid financial foundations in her own life. And she was someone that you couldn't pull, well, she is, she is not someone you can pull the wool over her eyes. (laughs) Um, And so her financial advisor very much recognized that she was in charge of the relationship or she was in charge of her money and they had a mutual relationship built on trust. And so I think very fondly of that relationship between my grandmother, Rita, and her financial advisor, Peter, who would come to the house and have very... Uh, you know, comprehensive and, and diverse conversations with my gran about what was happening with her money and where best he thought she should be putting it. So, and so all the while you're just kind of observing this, right? Yeah. I mean, imagine as a small child, I'm just watching and normalizing in my mind that, okay, mm. so, uh, these, you know, men like Peter, white men like Peter who talk about money, we can hire them to tell mm. us what they know about money. And then we can learn how to manage our money too. That was completely normal in my mind. And so, you know, there are lots of things, you know, again, in thinking about how my experience has lent completely fresh eyes to the way that I view the role that different demographics might play in society. You know, we recognize that certain groups have a certain kind of privilege, but there was never a point in my life or in my existence where I have felt that I don't have privilege. And so I'm very particular about the language and the narrative 
that I use to describe not just myself, but the rainmakers, some of whom will come from similar backgrounds and who may believe that actually the world of finance and investing is not for them, whether it's, you know, in a, from a career perspective or, of course, from the perspective of Raincheck, thinking about where they can invest and grow their money. Maybe investing is not for them because we, we are more familiar with real estate, so we are going to stay in our lane. And so it's enabled me to kind of share all of my, you know, upbringing, everything that I've learned, all of that confidence that I have in myself with the Rainmakers. And I think, you know, again, you know, directly in response to your question about why I was led to pursue that career in finance and investing, it was as a result of observing that growing up and observing the power of finance and the power of having solid financial foundations mm-hmm. in having the quality of life that you want to have. As you know, from in my grandma's case as a mother, but then as a retiree, being able to do the things that she wanted to do and retire in comfort. Yeah, love that. And so it sounds like one of the first lessons you learned was financial advisors, they exist and they're accessible. <laughs> yes. What would you say were some of the other lessons you kind of learned along the way? Because given the fact that you had this really inspiring childhood and you had those role models around you. You then obviously made certain choices as far as university. I mean, I presume, again, you could tell me different, but when it came to managing like university debt, how did you navigate that? Mm. I think for me, I mean, as somebody that didn't leave home to go to university, my experience Ah. in that respect would have been quite different. Yes, because Mm -hmm. I mean, the thing that I should also share is that I'm a real mama's girl. In fact, more than that, I'm a real grandmama's girl. And so the idea of me leaving home at 18, they certainly viewed me as a child. I think one of the downsides of coming from, oh, 100%. coming from like, one of, right? Coming yeah, in hindsight, I'm like 18 sprawling. is mad young. <laughs> right? But of course, you know, for lots of my friends who, who had had different experiences and were socialized differently, they couldn't wait to leave home at 18. They were like, no, Dav, I'm ready. Yeah, and was I was me. like, <laughs> leave home? What? Why on earth would I do that? And so, you know, there's that trade-off that comes from, you know, coming from a big family, uh, being pampered and spoiled, the idea of me then going away to struggle and live, live in a dorm, I was like, why would I do that? Just why? So, so I think the idea of uh, managing debt was not something that I ever had to confront until I left home at 22, 21, okay. and moved down to London for my first graduate job. And it was at that juncture that I was introduced to the overdraft. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's when I knew what that was. Yeah. So it wasn't, okay. And, and so given the fact that you were introduced to the overdraft, how, you know, what was your relationship with the overdraft? Mm, I think, well, and and this is something that I talk about quite a lot when I speak, when I go into schools and I speak with young, young women, I treated it as my money. I don't think I accepted (laughs) or acknowledged that it was debt. I don't think, and certainly I was on one of those graduate accounts that they fling at you and, you know, as soon as you finish university that says, you know, 0% interest. So anything that had 0% on it, I was like, well, that's my money. Yeah. There was no, I had no understanding in my mind that it was purely discretionary and that at any point they could withdraw that uh, facility from me. There was no idea in my mind that actually at some point I would need to repay that money. I just treated it as an extension of my salary and I was living my best life in London. And it was at that point that I realized, wow, is this what everybody was doing at 18? I'm late to the party. (laughs) So my overdraft was like my best friend and I just did not make any association. In fact, if anybody would have asked me at that point when my, you know, my family members would say, how are you getting on? And I'd go up to Birmingham at weekends 
and all of my uncles and aunts would be shoving money in my pockets as we do. You know, it's a very, very Caribbean thing. You know, people would be folding up, you know, 20 pound notes into these squares and shoving it in my hand as I was getting the train back down to London. And they were so proud of me and they would say, you know, how are you getting on? And I would say, oh, I'm doing really well. You know, I'm earning this salary and, you know, I'm managing everything and I'm paying my rent and I'm paying my bills and I'm doing good. I did not even think to think that the overdraft might potentially be an issue. I didn't think of it as debt. Mm. So obviously, spoiler alert, you paid it off. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And you've landed. I landed. You know, and you worked out, you know, that concept. But then at some point you then learned about investing. Yes. Where did that come from? So the investing came from, and, and interestingly enough, it actually came quite late. So in terms of the the practical understanding of investing or the technical understanding that came very early on in my career. So uh, that first graduate job that I had, we had to com- we had to do an investment qualification. It was one of the okay. prerequisites for the role and we had to pass that exam in order to be eligible to remain on the programme. So we were under a lot of pressure. I started in the July and my exam was in November and I got the results in December. And we'd all wow. heard those stories of people who'd failed the exam you get two opportunities to pass. If you fail both times, then, you know, that concludes your time on the program. So we were wow. all thinking, you know, gosh, you know, the stakes are really high. Now, of course, I am such a, you know, classic type A. And I, again, I'm sure there are lots of, you know, if anyone's listening that went to a girl's school, they can understand that real kind of girl's school type A energy, very diligent, mm-hmm. very conscientious about exams. Prefect, and, girl. Right, yep. Exactly. And, you know, I stressed and stressed about it. And I, you know, I did well. I managed to pass the qualification. And it's very interesting about exams like that. It's funny that now full circle, you know, almost 20 years later, lots of those principles from that investment qualification, I I see how I use them in my day-to-day life. But I also understand how in, you know, in thinking about building my career and my success in uh, certain roles that I've had since then, the thing that I find that was always quite frustrating was that we never felt that we were able to practically apply some of those lessons early on, if that makes sense. Mm. And I imagine it's, a, it's a, you know, it's like when people say, why are we bothering to learn trigonometry? Why are we bothering <laughs> to learn algebra? Because we need to really learn how to manage our, uh, uh, manage debt and build our credit mm. score and all of these sorts of things. But actually, you know, I have quite a different perspective on that because I think that what it teaches you quite often is critical thinking. It teaches you Mm. to be analytical. And so whilst we may not necessarily be trying to figure out all of these different angles and geometry and whatever in our day-to-day lives, there are certain principles that we do learn through pure maths, advanced maths, calculus, etc., that help you in other aspects. It enables you to be objective. It enables you to be disciplined and to observe data from an impartial perspective rather than putting so emotion into so much emotion into everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I think where the investing came from was really, you know, recognizing I've done this qualification. I'm really interested in finance. That's why I work in this, uh, this, for this company and within this industry. But I had this frustration that Obviously, I'm a graduate, but I had big ambitions and I was like, but I'm not getting to see any clients. And, you know, I worked on the institutional side of the business, which uh, effectively means pension funds and sovereign wealth funds. So I wasn't actually dealing with an average investor. And of course, for a firm like that, an average investor, you're talking about a high net worth uh, Mm. person. Uh, and so my role as somebody that was very junior was to do a lot of anti-money laundering checks and, um, you know, due diligence on the clients that we would be taking on just to make sure that they, they, there was nothing fraudulent going on or anything like that. And so I didn't really feel that I was getting 
close enough to the clients as I would like. And so I'd started to spend a lot of time doing my own work, my own research around how I could invest my own money. And that's really where that began. I read a brilliant book when I was about 23 or 24 by um, a former FT journalist, uh, Merrin Somerset Webb. And the book was called Money, uh, Love is Not Enough, A Girl's Guide to Making Money and Keeping It. And that really left a lasting impression on me. I remember thinking at that point, I wasn't engaged, I wasn't married, but I did think to myself, you know what? I I loved her writing anyway. For years and years, I'd I'd read her column in the FT. And so when that book came out, I was like, this is brilliant. You know, she's talking about financial independence for women and why it's important that we assert our economic authority and power, not just in the workplace, but in our relationships and certainly uh, where our money is concerned so that we can have and enjoy the quality of life that we want to enjoy. So I think that that was something else that planted a seed too. Brilliant. And so you had this amazing kind of journey where not only did you study investing, but you were able to kind of see how it could apply to your life. So then what inspired you to focus on helping women? And what was it about us that needed that extra help, if that makes sense? Yeah, it does. I think, again, you know, coming from, I always come back to my upbringing and the fact that I come from a very, I'd probably say matriarchal culture. Caribbean culture can be quite matriarchal. Um, The men are absolutely there playing their roles, but, you know, there's some really powerful women And in my case, at least, you know, I was surrounded by, you know, cheerleaders, just an army of female cheerleaders that had such strong conviction in everything that I did. And of course, you know, the example that I've given of my grandmother and how she managed her money, that really left a lasting impression too. And so when I was an adult and I'm now exposed to women that are saying to me, really well-educated professional women that are saying to me, Dav, I've been to see a financial advisor and had a terrible experience, or Mm. I've got all of this money. I've been paid this massive bonus. I don't really know what to do. What kinds of things might you suggest given that you work in investing? Mm. Um, And then starting to become more and more familiar with the many financial inequalities that women were facing and just being completely stumped, you know, know, thinking about the gender pay gap, thinking about the gender investing gap and recognizing that not enough women were investing their money for later life. And then starting Mm -hmm. to understand some of the drivers that were compounding uh, this misery for lots of women at a point in our lives. You know, if you think about the various pinch points that we might have in our lives as individuals, you know, moving out of home, getting married, maybe moving in with a partner, um, for lots of us getting divorced, uh, you know, bereavements. We know women live longer than men on average, but all of the data was pointing to the fact that despite us living longer, we were saving less for later Mm. life. Um, And of course, you know, it's easy for us to see what the implications of that are for society. So for me, it was a real no-brainer to step into, you know, when I was conceiving of the kind of business I would like to build, it was, it wasn't a massive leap for me to say, you know, I love the world of finance, but I just recognize there are a number of things that are dysfunctional or asymmetrical. Mm -hmm. Women are not getting, uh, that we don't have a seat at the table anywhere near the numbers that we need to, in order to be representative in terms of policy decision-making, product development decisions, um, around devising products and services that are designed to help us meet our own needs. And so for me, what I wanted to do was to close some of those gaps, close this, you know, hypothetically, this competence gap, which I actually don't think exists. I think that that really is. Uh, I recognise that for, for lots of women, there, there are certain knowledge gaps that we might have, but there's no question in my mind at all about our competence as women in managing our money. So I think that's one of the big myths that, that needs to be dispelled. Um, mm. But certainly the rates at which women are investing our money, you know, there's a lot of narrative and rhetoric out there that says that women are 
overall risk averse when actually, you know, the, the more preferred language that I like to use is that the decisions that we take are risk adjusted. We are more risk aware <laughs> because we recognize the stakes are higher. Quite often we have so many other responsibilities. We're thinking about not just ourselves, but our loved ones as well. And so our decision making process might be uh, slightly different than our male counterparts. And so for me, it, it felt very natural for me to think about with all of my knowledge and experience, how can I help these women to recognize the power that they already have inherently within them and to feel more confident and emboldened in making more savvy financial decisions? I mean, that's exactly where we want to get to. I know, right? Me, most certainly. <laughs> and, you know, you touched on kind of the myths and misconceptions around the idea of investing. Um, but to that point around investing, we know it often involves risk. How can mm-hmm. women build the confidence to navigate any potential risks? Yeah, I really think that building confidence in anything is a function of time, experience and knowledge. So, you know, it's just like, you know, for, for small children, I mean, children are very audacious anyway, but as soon as they start to, you know, they'll, they'll leap off uh, a diving board. And, you know, as parents, you're standing on the sidelines going, oh my gosh, they're going to hurt themselves. They're going to hit their head, but they'll take that leap. I think what happens as adults, of course, you know, as we become more aware of dangers, then that fear starts to creep in. But I think over time, as long as we are committing ourselves to learning, to exposing ourselves to the right stimuli, the right information, then over time, what we do is to be, we close that knowledge gap. And in closing that knowledge gap, we are then we then feel more confident in making decisions about our finances. Because as I say, money is such an emotional thing. Mm -hmm. And I think for lots of us, particularly if you recognize that if you've grown up in a certain household or a certain environment or in a society that tells you repeatedly that, you know, uh, talking about money is not the done thing for women. Women are inherently worse at numbers than men are. And, you know, you hear these messages repeatedly. It's a reason why I'm very intentional about some of the content that I share through RainCheck. Because I almost want to replicate, and I'm not saying that the the entirety of the girls' school experience was a positive one, but I do (laughs) think in this respect, actually, there is a lot of merit in the fact that we were so bold because we didn't know that anybody thought that we we potentially, quote unquote, were inferior in Mm. terms of our financial knowledge or our scientific knowledge or our mathematical knowledge. We didn't think to think that that was a thing. And so that's basically the energy that I want to give the Rainmakers that unlearn everything that you may have been told about managing your money. This is your financial future reimagined. Mm -hmm. And so between us, what we're going to do is to isolate and identify those areas that you are struggling with the most. And quite often investing comes up, you know, because of course there are a number of risks associated with it. And it's important that we have an understanding of those risks. But as soon as we understand the risks, we can then take decisions to mitigate them and think about how can I navigate and maneuver this risk? And so, for example, one of the principles we talk about is around diversification you know, making sure that you are not putting all your eggs in one basket. It's a principle we can all relate to. And in so doing, to spread that risk, you are never going to reduce it to zero. Mm-hmm. Even invest, even holding all of your money in cash is not a risk-free decision, contrary to what lots of people might think because of the eroding effects of inflation. And we recognize that a pound today is not worth a pound next year, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so really all of our, my focus is on that education piece, but doing so in a way that's non-patronizing, non-condescending, but designed to get to the specific heart of the issue that women might be confronting and to remind them there is nothing that you can't learn. 
Mm-hmm. And so therefore mm-hmm. there is nothing that you won't be able to do when you have this knowledge. And as soon as you've got that knowledge and I've seen the evidence of it, the women are away. You know, I've had testimonials from women who are saying, Dav, as a result of your program, I have now invested £10,000 into a junior ISA for my child. Mm-hmm. Or I have started investing and I never thought I would have invested. No one in my family has ever invested. I'm the first one. And now I'm sharing my knowledge with them. All of those things are so heartwarming because it's effectively a transformation that applies to real life which is what we're trying to do. I love that. And in our pre-chat, in our pre-chat, you know, we talked about this idea of calculating the cost of the life we want to live. And so Mm -hmm. how can we do this without feeling maybe intimidated or even overwhelmed by the true costs of some of the dreams we want to fulfill? Yeah, it's a really big one. And, you know, I quite often, I mean, the the Raymakers and I get very candid uh, with one another, which is one of the benefits of, you know, this safe space that we've cultivated. And so I often share my own experience as someone who had this, you know, I always have big goals. I've, I've been someone that has had these, you know, huge goals for myself and huge ambitions. You know, there is base, there's virtually nothing that I don't initially conceive of in my mind that if I'm committed enough to it, that I then don't go on to achieve. And it, you know, it comes from having, you know, a really solid mindset and faith in my own abilities. Mm. And I think for me, when I decided that I wanted to move abroad and I wanted to spend part of my year in the Caribbean and raise my two daughters in this environment, First of all, I was very intentional about what that looked like. And it was, you know, this is a process over, you know, a number of years. So the one message that I always give to anyone, you know, not just women, is that just because you have a goal or a priority, it doesn't mean you've got to act upon it immediately. And then sure. that immediately takes some of the pressure off because I think we assume that if we have a goal, oh my gosh, I've got to do it straight away. I haven't got capacity to do it straight away. I'm overwhelmed. I'm just going to abandon it. And then what you find is if it's a goal or a priority that means enough to you, it keeps floating back up. It's like a cherry that you, you know, if you have a, like a rum punch and you're trying to shove the cherry to the bottom of the glass and it just keeps bobbing up to the top. It's a bit like that, right? And, you know, the sweetness is, is then when you bite the cherry. This is basically the analogy that I try to use with the Rainmakers that you can't suppress something that is your heart's desire. So then it's about putting the infrastructure in place to help you achieve it. And so for me, of course, I've got two young daughters. They're six and nine. And we moved, you know, we, we moved three years ago. And for me, it was, okay, what are the different costs that will be associated with me pursuing this ambition? Why is it important to you, Dav? Uh, what will be some of the financial costs? What will be some of the emotional and mental costs? Mm. What are the opportunity costs? Because of course, you know, if you're in one part of the world and an opportunity comes up in the UK, what are you going to do about that? And of course, in the midst of the pandemic, it was easy to conceive of that because we moved to a virtual environment. But when the world opened up and I had to plan for that, when the world opens up, what exactly are you going to do? And so I very methodically was able to work through that in terms of, you know, documenting what those financial costs might look like, how the cost of living might differ. Um, Looking at schools, of course, because I'm considering the girls, you know, they were forefront of my mind in making that decision. Um, But also, you know, the emotional costs, how would it feel to be raising the girls in an environment where, you know, as I say, I come from such a big family, how would it feel to raise them away from the family? Uh, Would, you know, did I have capacity to be able to manage that by myself? Of course, building my own support uh, system in this new environment, but recognizing I'd be leaving a support system behind. And so the thing that I always remind the Rainmakers of is that there are different groups of costs. I think sometimes we can disproportionately focus on the financial costs Mm. and then, you know, think, well, actually I can do that easily. 
but then we fail to acknowledge some of the other costs. Or maybe we think, oh, actually, I can't, you know, the financial cost is too great. I'm just going to abandon it. And in so doing, we inhibit ourselves from living the quality of life that we might otherwise live if we'd just given ourselves permission to take the handbrake off our imaginations. So for me, it's about being really disciplined. First of all, dreaming big. You don't get into the granularity, first of all. You've got to dream big, first of all, and really be uninhibited. That expression that I just used about taking the handbrake off is one that my literary agent said to me when I was writing my proposal, my book proposal for Cash's Queen. And it stuck with me because it's, it's just brilliant. If yeah. you think about taking the handbrake off and just really flying, just going with it, you know, instead of, you know, constantly, you know, putting the emergency stop on and putting the brakes on, but being really methodical about what it takes and what it costs and knowing that, you know, nothing that is good comes easy, Mm -hmm. but it just makes, you know, the victory even sweeter when you achieve it. So that for me is, is the best approach. And penultimate question, what advice would you give then to a woman who knows absolutely nothing about investing, but is probably at that point in her journey where she can start? Mm. I would say start by, there's so much free content out there um, and social media, I know that it has its, its pluses and minuses, but I think in this respect, if you can find a credible financial educator, do look into their credentials and you can do that quite easily via Google. But if you can identify a credible financial educator, of course, RainCheck shares content, but there's so many other accounts Uh, that are sharing brilliant content all the time and find somebody with a personality that, that resonates with you. They have the energy that you like, the spirit that you like, and that you will listen to. And they will be breaking, you know, lots of these investing concepts down really Mm. simply. We have a blog as well. So if you're somebody that likes reading blogs, we break down a lot of those principles and uh, terms on there, because I think the biggest stumbling block for lots of people when it comes to investing is demystifying the world of finance and investing in the first place. You know, we're, we are renowned for use of really unnecessary jargon and small print, which of course lends its lends uh, mistrust to the industry. All of that obscurity and opacity just means that people are far less inclined to do anything at all. Whereas cash saving is something we understand. So even though implicitly, you yeah. know, gosh, I'm not making any money, you're still like, but you know what? It's fine there. I get it. I'll put my money in the bank and I'll just leave it there and I'm going to do something about it eventually. And then eventually never happens. So I think mm-hmm. you start by trying to upskill yourself in a really passive way, you know, just by absorbing as much knowledge as you can. Invest in books. There's a brilliant one uh, by a financial educator that I personally follow called Ramit Sethi. who's okay. written a book called I Will Teach You To Be Rich. New York Times bestseller, brilliant. And he talks a lot about uh, how you can set up a really good system and automate that system so that it does it for you. I think automation is the key here. And then once you feel that you've got enough knowledge, I always say the best start point for anybody that is taking their first steps is to go use tech. So I don't expect anybody to be, you know, signing up to a platform and trying to pick their own funds or, uh, and certainly not try and pick individual stocks because you are not going to get anywhere near the, the level of diversification, nor are you going to be skilled enough in asset allocation decisions to make sure that you are spreading your risk. Mm. And so the best way to uh, navigate around that is to use or uh, sign up with one of those apps that exist, whether you are in the UK or the US or overseas, there are a number of them that have sprung up with the advent of the fintech industry or financial mm-hmm. technology. And so, for example, if you're in the UK, there is Nutmeg, which is backed by JP Morgan. Oh, yeah. There is Wealthify, which is an Aviva-backed ba- uh, company. So they're two uh, already t- uh, credible, uh, as they are known, robo-advice 
companies in their own right. And then you've got these huge conglomerates behind them, which again, just lends that kind of, you know, sense of trust that we might Mm -hmm. all all, uh, be concerned about. And effectively what they do is to take you through a process where it will ask you a series of questions. It will assess your risk profile uh, and how much you can afford to invest. And I think you can start from as little as £25 a month. Oh, wow. That to me is the perfect start point because you can learn as as you go and you can build confidence as you go as well. Another really good one for anybody listening in the UK in particular is one called Moneybox, which effectively rounds up the spare change from any purchase that you might make. I have no affiliation or commissions from any of them, but they are really, really good start points for entry level people. So Moneybox is perhaps a step before getting to even the nutmeg or the wealthify. It rounds up the spare change. Again, it will do uh, ask you a, a series of questions, make a, a recommendation for you. You pick one and then it will invest that spare change based oh. on those roundups, really simple and automated way for you to get going. And so you have no excuse. <laughs> oh, amazing. And I mean, Davinia, one of the reasons why I do this podcast is because I believe in the power of knowledge, um, especially because once you know something, that can set you at ease, de-stress. And I mean, even just the bits of advice you've given, I'm just like, man, I know what I'm doing tomorrow. <laughs> I know because I'm thinking I'm one of those cash hoarders <laughs> and yeah. I, know it's, I know it's depreciating so no, I really appreciate that <laughs> pace myself yes 100% yes. Um, so my final question which I ask all my guests is how do you finesse your wellness Oh, for me, I've got a really busy brain and a really busy body so I'm always moving and it's really funny living on a on an island where everything moves at uh, glacial pace, if you like, <laughs> despite not glacial temperatures. Um, and so I've had to learn to slow down. It was one of the reasons that I made such a, a big shift from, you know, a busy London life, which I absolutely loved and I miss London daily to, you know, a much more laid back pace of life. And so for me, you know, my well-being and my wellness has become increasingly important over time. I am somebody that was always very active. So in addition to, you know, my, my CrossFit and like regular gym workouts, I spend a lot of time doing yoga either with other people or by myself at home. That's really important to me. Um, reading has always been a big part of my wellness. So anybody that knows me will always know that I'm always reading something. I'm always in the middle of one book or two. I always got a book on the go and that really helps to de-stress and unwind my brain. Um, and then just, you know, making sure that I'm surrounded by people that fill me up rather than draining me. That's really important too, because I, I am somebody that, um, and I've always had this feedback that I attract a lot of people that are attracted to high energy, but then if they are lower energy, then they just effectively can become drains on my emotions and I find myself exhausted. And I think it's one of those things that happens as you become older, you start to recognize that you can be in certain spaces and you're like, how come I'm like exhausted after I've had that? Like I've got to have a sit down or a lie Mm -hmm. down after being in certain spaces or around certain people. And so I'm much more mindful and intentional about who I surround myself by. So I'm very lucky to be surrounded by people that fill me up as much as I hope I fill them up. And we have this mutual uh, radiating energy that's just really nice and positive. So all of those things, but I'm very, very intentional about my wellness. So I'm glad that you asked that question. <laughs> oh, and thank you for filling us up. <laughs> oh, thank oh. you. So where and how can people connect with you and the Raincheck community? So the best place to start is raincheck.com via our website. Sign up to the mailing list. We send out a weekly newsletter that just 
is a really nice snapshot of everything that we think you need to know in the world of uh, personal finance, as well as our podcast. So we have a weekly podcast as well. So for anybody that is listening that loves a podcast, we talk to, you know, a, a series of, you know, inspiring women about their personal relationships with money in their own individual areas of expertise. So they would be the main ways to connect. If anybody wants to contact me on LinkedIn or connect with me on LinkedIn, they can do so there as well via Davinia Tomlinson. And then of course, at RainCheck on all social media platforms. Nice one. Thank you so much, Davinia. You're welcome. Thank you. Like one of the things that makes financial wellness such a joy for me is getting the chance to learn things from really, really, really inspirational women and Davinia is undeniably one of them so here are my top three takeaways number one stay curious it was pretty apparent to me that Davinia loves to learn and the reality is we do not know what we don't know no matter how much we think we know so yo guys read a book listen to a podcast check out her community but more importantly just Stay open, stay curious, and always stay willing to learn more and more. Number two, dream big. There is no reason why we need to limit ourselves to our current realities. And actually, one of my favorite questions inside and outside of work is what if? Because what if allows you to explore the things you might consider to be impossible or out of your reach? And finally, number three, use the tech. Davinia mentioned some amazing platforms out there and I'm actually going to throw in another one that, yo, they do not pay me for this, but I love it. It's really cool and it's called Your Juno. It's an app that they very much position themselves as the Duolingo of money. Can you imagine? But it is very fun. (laughs) And whether you're a Gen Zer, which is very much what it's pitched at, or you're just like a older millennial that, you know, likes likes an app. Um, you'll definitely understand the principles of money management and investing with your Juno. So I hope you enjoy this episode of Finesse Your Wellness brought to you by Fly Girl Collective, a space for black women and women of color who want to level up their wellness and lifestyle. You can follow Fly Girl Collective on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or sign up to our mailing list at flygirlcollective.co for lovely tips, goodies, and invites delivered straight to your inbox. Also, if you loved what you heard, rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Catch you on the next episode.